One book that came out in the early 80s is, uh, was a book by Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop. C. Everett Koop, uh, you may remember, was a Surgeon General of the United States under Ronald Reagan. And uh, Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop wrote a book uh, entitled, Whatever, what, Whatever Happened to the Human Race? And they begin the opening chapter called The Abortion of the Human Race, making this statement, Cultures can be judged in many ways, but eventually every nation and every age must be judged by this test. How did it treat people? How did it treat people? Each generation, each wave of humanity evaluates its predecessors on this basis. The final measure of mankind's humanity is how humanely people treat one another. There are choices to be made in every age, and who we are depends on the choices we make. What will our choices be? What boundaries will we uphold to make it possible for people to say with certainty that moral atrocities are truly evil? Which side will we be on? Well, this has been an issue that has been gripping our culture and really our world for really a long time, way before 1973. And this morning, as we consider a biblical perspective on the Supreme Court decision pointedly of what happened this past Friday, uh, this certainly will not be exhaustive uh, and probably will leave quite a bit out. And, uh, and there's certainly, you can find resources that are going to be very helpful in, uh, in other areas that I won't cover. But I want to just break it down in three simple categories to give some thoughts and perspectives uh, on this issue that is before us. So number one is just what I call a review on protecting the unborn historically and culturally. A lot, lot to be said about that. The historic moment uh, for America which was the 1973 Supreme Court ruling of what is referred to as Roe v. Wade, Roe v. Wade, uh, which legalized abortion nationally. Uh, that specific uh, case that the Supreme Court used to pull out of thin air in 1973 that abortion was a constitutional right, that decision that everything was based on since January of 1973, that was what was overturned. Abortion was not made illegal on Friday. You understand? There's, that's not what happened. Okay? Um, it did not end abortion in this country. The, the, the court's ruling means that the battleground went from one place to 50 places. It went now from the legality of the Supreme Court's decision being the basis for abortion at any, you know, for any uh, need or whatever, now it is going to be turned back over to the states to determine for each state what they will determine of how abortion will be regulated or not in their own state. 
That's all that took place. In 1973, I was 11 years old. The Supreme Court concluded that a woman's constitutional right to privacy included a right to terminate her pregnancy at will. We're not talking about uh, for medical, health, life necessity. Those things were always predominantly uh, allowed in the medical community. This had to do a very specific right to a woman's privacy, as they described it. Uh, after this, this decision was handed down by the Supreme Court in 1973, not only were the abortion laws then in all 50 states turned on their heads, because now there was a federal statute by the Supreme Court that made whatever Illinois, Florida, Delaware, null and void, because now there was a federal statute. Federal trumps the state. Uh, and so it rendered that all those, there would be no legal prohibition against abortion in uh, a woman's ability to choose that for her own self. And it would soon be clear that any prohibitions would continue to be hindered and fought, uh, and that abortion on demand would be and has been since 1973 the law of the land in the United States. So that just kind of is a review of, what, uh, of where we're at. And so in thinking about this momentous decision that kind of is in a culture is kind of an earthquake, we want to, as Christians, uh, kind of just stop and uh, calibrate ourselves to make sure that we have our heads on straight, that we have a biblical perspective, that we have our minds around what the situation is, what our calling as Christians, as a church, and as a church body is, and to just be, uh, to consider those things as we move forward. Because abortion is not over. The fight is not over. In fact, it's now become maybe more complicated. And so as Christians and as a church body, we need to make sure that our minds are biblically based. When you think about history, the Judeo-Christian ethic, the Jewish Christian ethic, philosophy, mindset, has always been on the side of protecting the unborn child. That's just a fact. That's just been the consistent rule. That Judeo-Christian teaching has always been on the side of protecting the unborn. Abortion or intentional termination of life in a mother's womb is not new. Only thing that has changed through the years is the sophistication and technology that medical quote-unquote advancement has made to terminate a pregnancy. But abortion, you can go back to Roman culture. And abortion was condoned and accepted in ancient Roman culture, and even before that, as we'll see in a little bit uh, this morning. But early Christian writings, early Christian literature, if you go back to find historically those places and individuals who wrote after the apostles died, the, what we call sometimes the church fathers, the early church, and you find their writings, there is quite a bit of support that counters 
the Roman acceptance of abortion. One Roman official by the name of Cicero, who lived about uh, 50, 60 years before Christ, uh, wrote in the 12 tables of Roman law that deformed infants should be killed. That was Roman law. Abortion was practiced and accepted as a normal activity or consequence among the poor, slave, merchant, and even royal classes who had financial access. To ancient peoples in the Roman culture, abortion was amoral. Amoral, meaning it wasn't right or wrong. It was just it was just a medical procedure. And that's really kind of where our culture thinks about these type of things and using euphemisms by, you know, reproductive rights. What is that? You know, uh, uh, euphemisms like women's health care. Uh, you know, things because you don't want to really identify and say what the procedure actually is doing and is actually saying. And so the Romans uh, just considered it amoral and there was certainly nothing in Roman law or culture that had any sympathy for the unborn, let alone a child that was born. It was certainly legal and accepted that if a child was brought to term and that child was not wanted, it was acceptable for them to take that infant and abandon it out in the wilderness or out on the roads outside the city and just leave it for dead or for whatever elements would take it or kill it. That was accepted. And so the early church writers, there's a little document called the Didache. That was a little book in the early church that was used kind of as a discipleship manual, the Didache. And it has a statement in the Didache that says, thou shalt not murder a child by abortion, nor kill them when born. So early on in the Christian teaching of the church, why did they have to even put that in there unless you had to be told new converts coming out of maybe non-Jewish pagan backgrounds, hey guys, it's wrong to kill your baby. Just FYI. No, you weren't raised that way. But they had to put that in there and it say this is what is Christian teaching because we base our Christian teaching upon our Jewish heritage of, of the Old Testament and the law, and it's certainly consistent in that. In another early Christian writing called The Letter of Barnabas, not a biblical book or what we would call canonical, but it is written, and this was about the year 130, you shall not abort a child nor again commit infanticide. Infanticide is killing a baby, a child outside of the womb. So early on, the church and Christians were consistent in, in communicating that abortion is wrong. It is not to be accepted. You know, it's the early Christians, as I mentioned about Roman practice, that would abandon babies and children. And one of the things that was noted by the uh, non-Christian pagan culture was how Christians were noted to respond in rescuing 
those abandoned babies. Now, sometimes the babies that they found out in the wilderness or on the outside of the city, on the roads or off the side or whatever, you know, oftentimes those babies were already dead and they provided a Christian burial for those babies. But sometimes those babies were alive and they took those babies in and raised them uh, in what was something unknown, but Christians created orphanages. And it was Christians that eventually were noted to create centers where they would bring healing and medicine uh, to whoever had need. It was the Christians that were noted for doing these things. That's the reason so many hospitals, I know it's getting changed today, but so many hospitals were named after religious organizations or saints or whatever. Why? Because their origins, their origins were based upon this mindset of protecting those who could not protect themselves, whether it's in medicine or certainly as an infant. In an encyclopedia of ancient Christianity, under the heading child, it makes this statement. Christians took in, the, took in these exposed children to save them, though often they could do nothing more than bury them. As the tombs of many children and inscriptions in the catacombs attest, and there's evidence of these things archaeologically, in some cases, consecrated women dedicated to serving the church or benevolent wealthy families took these children in as their own and educated them. The Roman law was changed when Emperor Constantine took to power in the uh, year, the 4th century. And if you know anything about history, Constantine converted to Christianity. Now certainly his application of Christianity was certainly not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But one of the things that as a result of Constantine becoming a Christian is that he outlawed abortion. Does that mean it never happened? No, you can outlaw abortion and it will still happen, right? But he sought to make laws that would protect these abandoned children and defended the child as a legal person. That's important. Because the child in or out of the mother's body is considered, and Constantine under this Roman practice considered that the child deserved protection as a person. And so Constantine, the Roman emperor who uh, came to faith in Christ, as the legend says, that in battle he looked up and saw a cross. And, uh, and you can read about that, and I don't know if that exactly was what happened or if that's just good storytelling, but nevertheless we know that he became a Christian and made Christianity the legal religion in Rome. Now that is fraught with problems, but we won't get into that, all right? So, so just historically, the Christian perspective has always and consistently been on the side of protecting the unborn. Now, fast forward. Think about since 1973, the advancement in technology concerning uh, what we know and understand about a child in development in the mother's womb. You know, one of the game changers in, this, in the whole pro-life movement 
has been technologically technological. And it's called the ultrasound. Recently, when I was at a woman's choice in Lakeland, and of course they have an ultrasound there and a RN on staff there that, that handles that. And uh, now, Sherry, correct me if I'm wrong. If somebody is seeking an abortion, they have to have an ultrasound? Or they have to. What? Okay, but it's not required. But they do have to have proof from a medical that they are pregnant, usually. Okay, all right, well, forget that. But it's, it's all over the map. But, here, but here's the thing, is that the nurse and anybody that does these will tell you it doesn't happen in every case, sadly. But in more often than not, when a mother comes in who is abortion-minded and they see that ultrasound, and they've been told that this is just a, a glob, a, a fetus that, you know, just tissue, whatever, and all of a sudden they see a framework of a little human inside of them moving around, all of a sudden their perspective has changed. And the ultrasound has been without question, a game changer. In fact, even the Washington Post recently, somebody made the statement and said this, and this person is certainly an abortion advocate, but they, this person, the Washington Post editorial, uh, Francis Kissling, made this statement I thought was interesting, where they said, because of the um, ultrasound that confirms what embryological textbooks and scripture have always stated. Now you're seeing it. You know, people want to yell and say, we believe science. No, you don't. There's science right there. Believe this. There it is. And this person in the Washington Post said, we can no longer pretend because of the ultrasound, we can no longer pretend the fetus is invisible. Why? Because they see, with their own eyes, life. And then the choice of terminating that life takes on a whole, whole other dimension. Think about what we know that generations didn't know about the development of a child in the womb. Just fast forward to five weeks of how the circulatory system uh, is beginning to form and the tiny heart will start to beat in the fifth week. Six weeks, your baby's nose, mouth, ears are starting to take shape, and their intestines and brain are beginning to develop. Seven weeks, little hands and feet that look like little paddles are emerging from the developing arms and legs. At eight weeks, your baby has started moving around, though the mother won't feel the movement quite yet. Nerve cells are branching out, forming primitive neurological pathways that's communicating to the brain breathing tubes now extend from their throat to their developing lungs also the baby because of this neurological development can feel pain at eight weeks nine weeks your baby's basic anatomy is developing they even have tiny earlobes now but there's much more their embryonic uh, tail has disappeared and they weigh just a fraction of an ounce, but are about to start gaining weight fast. And mama will start gaining weight even faster. At 10 weeks, fine details like 
fingernails and toenails are starting to form. The baby responds to touch at 10 weeks. At 11 weeks, your baby is almost fully formed. They're kicking, they're stretching, and even hiccuping as their diaphragm develops. 12 weeks, I'm not going to go through the entire, so just bear with me, so don't. We're not going to have a live birth here, so all right. Um, at 12 weeks, the baby's reflexes kick in. Their fingers will stu- soon begin to open and close. Toes will curl, and their mouth will make sucking movements. In weeks, this is the last week of your first trimester. Your baby's tiny fingers now have fingerprints, and their veins and organs are clearly visible through their skin. If you're having a girl, her ovaries contain more than 2 million eggs, 13 weeks. 14 weeks, your baby's brain impulses have begun to fire, and they're using their facial muscles. Their kidneys are working now, too. If you have an ultrasound, you may see them sucking their thumb. 15 weeks, your baby's eyelids are still fused shut, but they can sense light. If you shine a flashlight on your tummy, They'll move away from the beam. Ultrasounds done this week may reveal your baby's gender, which will either be male or female. Just to clarify. There's 23 more weeks to go. And yet it's interesting, because of Roe versus Wade, of just kind of opening Pandora's box for abortion... From birth to now, people advocate it moments literally before birth. That that 15-week marker has been the kind of legal line that a lot of states have tried to tap the brakes. In fact, back in April, Governor DeSantis signed a law in Florida. Remember, this is before Friday, so they're working under that federal law in order to tap the brakes for abortion just to go to birth, DeSantis signed that law back in April of uh, this year that did not allow abortion past the 15 weeks unless there was a serious risk to the mother and some conditions there. Now, that's quite different. Last year, when the governor of Virginia... The Democratic governor of Virginia was running for office in a radio interview in Washington. Himself, a pediatrician, which was a bit surprising, uh, was asked if he supported a particular abortion bill. And he said that those are decisions by physicians that should be made made to allow an infant to die even after birth. This is what he said. This is a pediatrician, the governor of Virginia. If a mother is in labor, not the governor now, if a mother is in labor, he says, I can tell you exactly what would happen. And he probably knows what he's talking about. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother, i.e., whether we're going to kill the child outside of the womb. You say, well, I didn't hear about that. Look it up. And the reason you didn't hear about it is because that's how warped 
our media and our culture has become, that that is not news. Because that's where we as a culture have taken this. So certainly a review, even just in a very limited way, reminds us of where we're at. But I want to do, secondly, a reminder of what Scripture teaches about the unborn child. This is important because many Christians are not informed by the Word of God. They're not informed by Scripture. This will not certainly be exhaustive, but I want to just highlight a few passages that I think are helpful as we, again, approach any of this Because as Christians, we're interested in how do we approach this as Christians. We have history of Christianity on our side, that this is certainly consistent. And we want to make sure that our foundation is the Word of God. Give you a few examples in Scripture that I think would be helpful, uh, that are, I think, uh, meaningful in reminding us what Scripture does teach. The first one is in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 41 through 44. The Bible reads that, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. For behold, when the sound of your greeting, verse 44, When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. There's a couple of things there that are worth noting. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, okay, Elizabeth called the unborn child in verse 44 a baby. She referred to as the baby. Uh, In the Greek, Greek is infant or baby. (coughs) It's the same word that's used when Jesus was born and referred to the baby lying in the manger. It was a baby. It was a child. And the the Bible says that Elizabeth also said that the baby leaped for joy, which means that this baby, this unborn child, responded, all right, uh, responded uh, with, uh, uh, to... Something that this child heard, uh, giving it personal, an attribute of personal human activity, when it leaped for joy, it, it, it responded to the sound of Mary's voice. He was able to hear Mary's voice even prior to birth, and the child, it says, felt joy. A human being, a child. Wayne Grudem uh, theologian and who's written a lot on theology and ethics, said in 2004, researchers at the University of Florida found that unborn children can distinguish their mother's voice and distinguish music from noise. Another study that was in Psychology Today in 1998 confirms that babies hear and respond to their mother's voice while still in the womb, and the mother's voice have a calming effect on them. Scientific studies speaking about the baby, the child responding to the mother's voice. More recent research done a few years back 
says that babies, it's just some research, can learn words and sounds in the womb. Remember, at eight weeks, the brain is developing neurological connectors, okay? I always thought, what would my children like, uh, be like if I just played Mozart and uh, lectures of philosophers and theologians, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know, it didn't happen that way. But, but isn't that amazing of how science even confirms, scientists that aren't even necessarily Christians, but affirm that there's, 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 this isn't just a blob of nothing tissue. This is actually a human being that is hearing and responding to data, information. It's a child. Another scripture that I find very helpful is in Psalm 139. You know this well, and it's always good to remind it that David thinks of himself as he's reflecting on the Word of God in Psalm 139. He's thinking of himself as a person growing in his mother's womb in Psalm 139. Great passage. Look at verse 13. And I'm using the New American Standard because it uh, it's a little more literal uh, than other versions. And uh, So verse 13 of Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. What a beautiful picture David is giving of the development. Weaving together of all that is part of humanity. Weaving together the chromosomes, the DNA. The weaving together of all the components, uh, components of the human body, which in and of itself, Romans 1 says, that which is created by God is evidence of a creator. How can you look at the intricacies of just the human body and the development of the human body and think how all that must just happen at random chance? The weaving together wove me in my mother's womb. All the components woven together with soul and spirit. Look at verse 14. He says, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. The word fearfully means awesomely. God's great power as he reflects upon the creator God of his very humanity, his very existence. He says, how awesome is God's power. What reverential awe that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The King James uses the word substance. My substance, literally substance or my frame speaks about my strength, my bones, my tissues, my muscles. It was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, the secret place of the mother's womb. And also in verse 15, that phrase, skillfully wrought, that's an interesting phrase that in the Hebrew means you embroidered me. How many of you ladies embroider or used to? You're not very crafty. 
Oh, now you want to get, all right. I thought you were a crafty group, but I got, all right. But embroidered, you know, the, the intricacies. Did your mother or grandmother, anybody embroider, right? Yeah. So, you know, the, that's probably why you don't do it. Um, but he's saying you made the very fabric. You pulled together every little thread and piece in how you made me. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God's hand of creation? Verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. Literally, the Hebrew is, speaks about something rolled together. When I was just a little ball of life, when I was just a little ball of chromosomes, God, you, you wove it all and put it all together. And he says, and in your book, in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was None of them. And then he says in verse 17, how precious are your thoughts to me. Not how precious are my thoughts to you, God, but how precious that you think about me, your thoughts to me. But the one scripture that I think is the most significant in regards to a discussion about abortion is actually found in Exodus. Exodus 21. And the significance of this is in the law of Moses. You know, the law of Moses was the governing law statutes of Israel and how they functioned and operated not only legally as a nation, but spiritually how they regulated worship. So the laws uh, pertain to Civil, ceremonial, and, um, and, and spiritual law or moral laws. The Ten Commandments are the moral laws, but there was laws in governing. There was laws in um, uh, borrowing. There was laws in uh, commerce. There was laws in personal hygienic activity. If you want to really get bogged down in some detailed laws, read Leviticus sometimes. And, all right. So, but again, remember, this was the... the and all of these laws even if they were, uh, might seem trivial concerning how food was prepared or whatever, they all were to illustrate a spiritual understanding and truth. All right, So don't miss that. They're not just random things. But in Exodus chapter 21, one particular law spoke of the penalties that were to be imposed if the life or health of a pregnant woman and her unborn child was endangered or harmed. Look at Exodus 21. When the men, this is creating a scenario and how the law would be applied. When men strive together, they're, getting, they're horsing around, they're in a fight, whatever the situation, and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children or child comes out, but there is no harm, the one who hid her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So, two men are fighting, horsing around, haggling over the last chicken bone, I don't know, whatever it is. 
And somehow in that activity, somebody inadvertently does something that strikes a woman who's present who is with child. And as a result of that, (coughs) the child is either brought to uh, early labor or something happens, but there is no death to the woman or the child. You with me? That's what it means by no harm. Yeah, there's harm, but there's no death. And so if there's no death, then it's an accident. Say accident. It's an accident. They'll be fine, all right? But if there is harm, verse 23, but if there is harm, meaning death, then you shall pay, what? Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The law, the Mosaic law, and why it's important, concerns the situation of men that are fighting. One of them accidentally hits a pregnant woman. They don't intend to do it. They're not careful, but it happens. And again, there's two possibilities. If she's, if she's not significantly harmed or there's no harm to her unborn child, there's a penalty and there's a fine. We have that today. We have that today. We have similar laws that a person is fined for drunk driving even though no one, get hit, no one is hit by their car and whatever. There, there's still fines for uh, reckless behavior, right? We still have those things. They recklessly endangered human life. And they get a fine or a penalty or some probation or jail time. But the second possibility is if there is harm, verse 23, that means if death ensued to the woman or the child, then the penalty was severe. The penalty that would be imposed upon the one who caused this would be what? Death. Now why is this significant? in our understanding about life and the unborn. This means that both the mother and the unborn child are given equal legal protection. Do you see that? They're both given equal status under the law. The baby, the child, is not less of a human being or not fully a human being, and therefore, no, they're given equal protection. The penalty for harming the unborn child is just as great as for harming the mother. Both are treated as persons who deserve full protection of the law. That is in ancient Israel Jewish law. Now, that's more significant when you think about other laws. There's laws that were given that if somebody committed manslaughter, you know what manslaughter is. That means it was unintentional killing of somebody. That there were laws that protected that that person who committed manslaughter, accidentally killed somebody. Maybe they were working in a field or they were doing something and something happened and they accidentally 
died as a result of this person's presence or neglect or action or whatever. Maybe they didn't fix that ceiling or they didn't fix that balcony or, or whatever it is. There was laws that governed those things. Because remember, Israel is a nation, and just like we have laws, they had laws. And you may be familiar, and this is brought about in Numbers. This is not on the screen. But in Numbers uh, chapter uh, 35, you can read about this, what was called the cities of refuge. How many of you ever heard of the cities of refuge? Those cities of refuge were designed that, in shorthand, if a person committed accidental killing of another person, manslaughter, they could flee to one of these cities of refuge, and they were geographically spaced out all over Israel. And they, for a time, could, in essence, be under house arrest in these cities of refuge. Think about it. They accidentally killed their neighbor out plowing a field or doing something reckless, and guess what the brothers and the uncles and the nephews want to do to you? They're coming after you. They're going to have revenge. That still goes on in Middle Eastern culture today. Quite gruesome. Those cities of refuge provided legal protection for the person who accidentally killed somebody for a season of time so that they wouldn't be subject to revenge or retribution. Now, why is that important? Think with me. Especially what we saw in Exodus 21. This means that God established for Israel a law code that placed a higher value on protecting the life of a pregnant woman and her unborn child than the life of anyone else in Israelite society. Because the scenario that was presented in this exodus was an accidental death. Unintentional harming the unborn child to cause the death of that child because of reckless behavior. That person was required to be under capital punishment. But if an adult had committed manslaughter and accidental death of another person, there was provision to protect them, if you will, put them under house arrest under these cities of refuge. They would still be penalized. Do you see that God valued the life of the unborn greater than other adult human beings in the culture? So I would ask you, how much more, if that is the baseline for accidental killing of an unborn child, then surely the intentional, willful killing of an unborn child must be considered even greater and worse. So the Bible teaches that we should think of the unborn child as a person at the moment of conception. And it is right and consistent as Christians to advocate legal, full, protective status for the unborn child as equal human beings 
under the law. That is consistent with biblical values. So, we did a review, a few quick reminders. But thirdly, as I close this morning, a resolve by Christians to continue defending the unborn. We've got to be resolved. And guys, I'll be honest with you. If you think dropping a little loose change in a baby bottle is going to do it, I don't think so. We've got to be, we've got to have convictions. Do we have convictions that something is right and something is wrong? Or have we been lulled into such a stupor by our culture that we don't even have the very basis of understanding of something so fundamental that God calls life. Lauren Green McAfee, and you notice the middle name Green, she is a part of the family that owns Hobby Lobby, the Green family, wrote something that's worth noting in the website on the Gospel Coalition. And she wrote this on uh, Saturday, and I thought it was worth concluding this morning. And it was called, After Roe, How Do We Stand for Life? And Lauren Green McAfee writes this. Listen to what she says. It's very important. As the church applies a robust ethic of each person's dignity, it requires us to care for individuals holistically. The church's involvement in adoption and foster care are good examples. Contrary to the criticism that Christians only care about the issue of life up until the moment of birth, a recent study concluded believers, Christians, are nearly three times more likely to adopt than the general public. Believers are more likely to be generous with their time and finances for those in poverty. And it's almost exclusively people of faith who run the pregnancy care centers in our country. But she says, still, more must be done. Even with the Supreme Court decision, abortion bans will only go into effect in around half of our nation's states. In other states, they will likely keep their access. Since the majority of abortions take place in the states that will maintain access, some estimates indicate only a 13% decrease in legal abortions will result in what took place on Friday. Think about that. They estimate only 13% decrease in that decision. That's not what we want. Abortion tourism. That means traveling from state to wherever you need. Abortion tourism, which already takes place, will only grow as women travel to abortion sanctuary states to have abortions. You may have seen, like I have seen, the tripping over themselves of people that we spend our money on, from Disney to Amazon to who else? I mean, just, you know, that they will pay an employee, pay for their travel and all expense payment for them to travel to wherever they need to have an abortion. She says, additionally, the abortion pill, and this is 
already accounts for more than 54% of all abortions in America. They can be mailed to a woman after a telehealth call from her doctor. The FDA loosened its restrictions on the drug in December, making it increasingly difficult to regulate. In fact, the president even signed legislation, legislation either late Friday or Saturday to ramp up the access to the abortion pill. And what are the weeks that they can take the abortion pill up to what? Up to 12 or 13 weeks. This means you terminate the life in your own home. You don't have to go to a clinic. Nobody knows. And there are medical side effects that are quite severe, as you can imagine, with that practice. And those of you in the medical community know that. So what do we do? Just shake our fist? You see, we're good at marching around monuments of the Ten Commandments, aren't we? Somebody's going to remove the Ten Commandments from the, from the park or the courthouse. Oh, we get up in arms. We're upset. It's just obeying those commandments is a little more tricky. Right? Do you not think the world sees our inconsistency? So what can we do besides just ranting and raving on Facebook and Twitter and whatever it is? What can we do that really is going to make a difference? Laws are certainly important. Voting for life, pro-life candidates is important. It is important. And if you saw anything, and I won't get it, but listen, elections do matter. They really do. Here's some ways, practical ways, not just individually, but as a church. A woman's choice has these, some of these. Start a discipleship group in your church to walk alongside single moms. See, it's easy to throw some change in a baby bottle. It's one thing to have a, a woman who's a single mom struggling and to come alongside of her and say, I'll walk with you. I'll shepherd you. I'll mentor you. I didn't have a, you know, you, maybe you didn't have a mother, but you can be a mother. And a woman's choice has training and programs and ways that that, that the church can do this. Next year, we're going to, Lord willing, somehow, not somehow, we'll add a woman's choice to our missions ministry. You realize if 20 of you a month, just 20 of you committed to giving $25 through your church giving, 20 at 25 a month, we'd give $500 to a woman's choice, starting now. Don't need a program. Don't need a bumper sticker. You don't need a souvenir to be a giver. Just start right on there, woman's choice. $25 a month, at least 20, that's 500. They just bought a mobile van and truck that will take ultrasounds to neighborhoods and people. So instead of them having to come to the clinic, this highly sophisticated, expensive van that they've had to hire their offices in north in downtown Lakeland they have to figure out where to park it so the truck isn't vandalized and destroyed 
support their resource closet. A woman's choice here in Lakeland has vast clothing and resources. Find out. What do you need? Help them do that. Diapers, clothing, whatever. They, they are a nonprofit ministry. As a church, we can provide an accepting, loving community for single moms. They don't have to face shame or embarrassment. But you want to come to Grace Church, we guarantee you, we'll love you, we'll care for you, we're not perfect, but you know what? We'll walk alongside of you. Churches can do that. You don't need a government program. Another thing that relates to practical steps is prepare your church. Go to the next slide for me. Support families in crisis. That means who are at risk of having their children removed from their home. Do we just stand by and say, well, let them get lost in the system? Or is there maybe families, even in this church, that say, you know what, I view this as a calling and I will somehow, some way, step in to assist that. How about, a, how about a church starting an adoption scholarship fund to encourage families who may have to go through an adoption process and to help offset finances? Some of you who have adopted, you know it's not cheap. It's expensive. It's very involved in the legal process. As a church, we can help and do that. How about educate members on foster care? About children who are already outside of the womb living what about them? Do we care about them? Start an adoption foster care support group where we're going to help families, encourage families. You see, again, none of this really requires a whole lot. It just says, are we going to put our money where our mouth is? Are we going to take seriously when we talk about life, are we going to really step up to the plate and do things? Obviously, we can't do everything. But you know what? You can do something. We can do something. We can do a little that can be a lot. The person I read something, Lauren Green McAfee, concludes her article by this. And it'll be on the screen. She says, as the church engages abortion in a way that demonstrates our belief that all people are created in God's image, our culture will be radically changed, even more than it has been by this Supreme Court ruling. That's being that salt and light that Jesus talked about. She says, this is an opportunity for the church to love people to Christ and help them in their journey. Let us not waste it. Now, I recognize that in a congregation like this, there are probably individuals here who have either had an abortion, assisted in abortion, and I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ graciously offers forgiveness for every sin. even the sin of abortion. You know, we have kind of a way 
that we like to magnify certain sins as worse than others, don't we? But I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ forgives all sin, including those who have had an abortion, paid for an abortion, assisted an abortion, and whatever the scenario. And maybe you're living under somehow the mindset that something that God puts such emphasis that is wrong to take life, you live under the burden of that guilt. But Jesus Christ has come to set you free, not only for that sin, but every sin that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness, past, present, future. So would you bow your head with me as we close in a word of prayer?